Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Kwadra Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, I want to thank you for joining us. We are in our third rendition of Dr. Suman Chakrabarty and Dr. Isaac Bogash. We are trying to answer all questions relevant to getting kids back to school, as many as we can. We're almost going to be a bit rapid fire, boys. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Going to get all the housekeeping things out of the way. All right. So for those that are Quadcast fans, we're in new settings. We moved from Amita, Carol and crew, thank you for putting on that party, down to Courtney Avenues, new gigs. Check it out. We even got the stand-up desk. Look at this. Whoa. Ergonomic. Whoa. Very ergonomic. ergonomic. Yes. Tell me that ain't fresh. All right. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. So Julia is going to be helping out the show again today. Thank you so much. She has the amazing website, A Spoonful of Science, where you get all your nutritional advice. Thank you, Julia, for helping us out. We couldn't do this without you. You, you just saw me representing my merch. Proceeds to, the, to merchandise for Solving Healthcare is going to give a mile. What a great organization. Connecting dying patients with their families. It's uh, Kevin Crow is an incredible human being. He was on the show a few episodes back. Um, so we're, we're really, it's a true privilege to support the show. Um, Low Carb Summit. I'm going to keep preaching this, guys. One of the messages that we're not hearing about too much with this whole COVID epidemic uh, epidemic is the fact that metabolically poor patients do worse. You know, diabetics, hypertensive patients are, are what we're seeing. And so I don't care what you do, but it, it is, it's time to get healthy. And so we had that summit on the low carb approach, keto approaches to health, which was fascinating. We had Dr. Paul Mason, we had Joy Kitty, we had Ivor Cummins, and it was a great conversation. And uh, so it, you We'll see the links to the show there um, if you if you want to see uh, the summit. Um, for those on Facebook, if you press ID in the text box, I think we'll be able to get you. We'll email you the sh the the show um, after it's recorded, and you'll also get uh, uh, linked up with our newsletter, which is incredible. Uh, see what what's uh, coming up in solving healthcare and so forth. So. Absolutely. Uh, type that into the to the text box. Okay. So like I said, we're doing this. We're doing this show. Actually, I never even got into it. We're doing this show because a lot of anxiety regarding going back to school and tons of questions. And they're good questions. How do we keep our kids safe? How do we keep our teachers safe? And so we had to get the boys back. We had to do it. And um, before getting into some of these questions, I I want to give a message out to the teachers because to be honest, if I'm being absolutely truthful, this was a big driver of doing the show today. Um, I want to say that it's totally, 
we understand that you're scared. All of us on this panel have been frontline. We've seen what COVID could do. And it was extremely intimidating in the beginning of the pandemic. And we understand where your fears are. But this is, and we were, you know, we got all the accolades and we're being called heroes and so forth. But honestly, this is your time. This is your time to be the heroes now. Because with your help, knowing that our kids are safe, knowing that our kids are in good hands, knowing that we can have peace of mind when we're, we're doing our frontline work, saying that, hey, our kids are being taken care of, knowing that we could have those, as much staff available, not at home taking care of their kids. This is so important in the pandemic. So this is your time. This is your time to be that frontline hero because we can't do this without you. So this is a true driver of why we wanted to do this. And I hope this, this podcast or this live cast helps in that, uh, in that endeavor. Okay. And the, and the other thing too is, um, is, um, actually, no, that's okay. All right. So we'll start off with probably the most basic question here. So we hear that kids get less sick from COVID. Is this founded on any science? Are we seeing any evidence of this whatsoever? Dr. Sumar Chakrabarty, do you want to take this one first? I will. And I will make an opening statement, first of all, is that I totally agree with something you said, is that, you know, we get you as the teachers, students, parents, we felt the same way in March. And I understand, I completely understand the trepidation. We're here to support and hopefully uh, you know, there's no risk-free solutions, but I know I think that we're going to be successful ultimately. So yeah, so let's start with kids. Kids, I think that this has been a bit of a hot topic, unfortunately, and you know, uh, we wanted to kind of go by the science on this. The long and short of it is that kids, yes, they can get COVID. Yes, they can spread it. But when the, in the grand scheme of things, they don't, get, they don't tend to get severely sick, and they don't tend to be the driver of spread. Can it happen in a situation? For sure. But you know, you rarely see a situation where one kid is responsible for you know, hundreds of infections. And I think part of the reason for that, we talk about these super spreaders, right? And super spreaders is not just the fact that you have like a mutant ability to um, secrete virus, but it's also the way that adults act. Think about if you're an adult and you work in an office, you're gonna be talking and you know, yelling and screaming and talking and walking around to seeing hundreds of people potentially during the day. Kids don't do that. Yeah, kids slobber on everything, but they don't have that many connections in their network. And that's part of the reason why I think that overall the risk is lower. That doesn't mean that we don't be careful. That doesn't mean that we don't worry about them. But overall, the main thing is kids tend to not spread as efficiently and they tend to not get as sick. Anything to add, Isaac? No, I, I totally agree with Sumon. And if we look, you can go on the uh, Government of Canada website and anyone can just Google, you know, COVID-19 stats and demographic or uh, epidemiology. You'll see there's really good data parsed out on, on the website. And you can look at uh, the U.S. actually and Europe, uh, the uh, EU has good data as well. You can look at, um, you know, metrics outcomes per age group. So you can look at, for example, uh, hospitalizations. Uh, some of them will tease out intensive care unit admissions. And of course, the, sadly, but, but one of the ultimate metrics is death. And you just see that people under the age of 20 uh, compared to the other age groups are rarely uh, hospitalized compared to the other age groups. It can happen. 
And of course, death is an extremely rare event in those under the age of 20. Of course it can happen, but it's a very rare event. I think in Canada, there's been one case in a 19-year-old, and I believe that person had other medical comorbidities. Still tragic, still awful. Uh, but but as, as Suman points out, kids can get this infection, kids can transmit this infection. Uh, but in general, kids just don't get as sick as adults. And also that's, that's not, it's not necessarily the point, right? Kids are going to school and obviously we don't want our kids to get this infection. I'm quite frankly, less worried about the skids, the, the skids, they are kind of skids. I'm less worried about the kids. I'm more worried about the adults who that they interact with, right? Who do they go home to? Who's What about their parents? What about their grandparents? What about anyone with medical comorbidities in the house? What about the teachers in the classroom or the other ancillary staff in the school? That's what I'm really, I'm really concerned about. The kids, most, of, most likely, we don't want them to get infected, but they'll, they'll mostly be fine, by and large. There's going to be kids with special needs, which we'll probably get into in a little bit. Yeah. But uh, as an amplifier of infection uh, and as potential modes of transmission in the community settings, that, I'm, I'm concerned about that. Yeah, I, I heard on a podcast too, just getting out, getting to the teachers. I haven't read this anywhere, so don't quote it as Bible, but I, I read that or I, I heard that uh, teachers basically weren't having higher risk of infections than the general public. I don't know if you guys came across that anywhere, but, um, but yeah, I found that interesting because I mean, the real. As, as, as you mentioned, my real concern would be the teachers and, and what and the people at home that get exposed. So and, and another question that has come up repeatedly for this is that, um, you know, what are the what are the potential long term uh, uh, impacts of having a COVID infection? Like you've seen in the I think it was in the Toronto Star. I, I kind of had issues with this, actually. They they posted this family that wasn't even wasn't even swabbed so they weren't even sure the patient they had covid and they were saying they had these ongoing symptoms such as prolonged cough and stuff is there any data to back this up or in terms of long-term implications of covid As you can Good one. Oh, okay. sure. oh sorry I, I put it out there oh. I, I, hey, are we doing paper rock scissors or what's yeah, yeah, going yeah, paper, on rock, scissors. Okay, let me, uh, I'll start quickly. And it's, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I think, I think this is a very new area. Obviously, you know, we're eight months, eight, nine months into the pandemic. Uh, yeah, there is um, certainly some signal. We're seeing people that have some kind of like ongoing symptoms. Now, I've seen people that have the kind of typical ongoing symptoms following a viral infection involving the lungs. So, you know, post-infectious cough, post-infectious fatigue. But, you know, I've been seeing more and more people that are complaining about a lot of other things. And these are kind of persistent symptoms, like, you know, uh, debilitating fatigue, paresthesias, chest pain. I don't know what it is yet. It's difficult to completely kind of put a, um, a, a kind of diagnosis uh, on what's happening. I don't think it's persistent infection, but I think it's some type of after effect. But again, I think we might find out more and there's ongoing research on that right now, especially at uh, our colleagues at Sunnybrook are uh, uh, looking at a lot of these uh, uh, post-COVID uh, situations. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, I think the term, or you, some people are using the term long haulers. And, and uh, yeah. certainly there is growing evidence that a small but real, of course, it's, it's real, a small but real percentage of people uh, have persistent symptoms after the, I would just say the acute manifestations are over. And, uh, and 
I think it's going to be very important to do a couple of things. One is obviously if people have symptoms and if people feel unwell, they need attention, they need care, they need to be listened to. Um, and, and, and that's important. But I think if we really look at that core group of people with persistent symptoms, I think what we're going to find is, and again, I'm just saying this out of love and respect here, that some of them will have never had COVID-19, right? Sort of what you alluded to, Quadro, earlier. Some of them will have never had COVID-19. Some of them will have had COVID-19. And I think it's going to be extremely important to tease those two groups apart, which might actually be challenging, even with the current diagnostic tests available. Now, even those without COVID-19, again, um, there's no finger pointing, there's no shaming, there's no blaming. People have symptoms, people feel unwell, they need care, they need help, they need support, they need to have this investigated. But if we really look at, so I'm, I'm not brushing that under the table whatsoever, but if we look at persistent symptoms in people who are positive had COVID-19, obviously that, that's, that's a real event. Uh, we see, uh, see seen cases of this periodically. I think it's going to be, at the end of the day, uh, a, ref, a small proportion of people who have this, but a real, like a, a real, uh, it's the real deal. And a lot of it is, as Sumon pointed out, you know, fatigue. A lot of it's fatigue. Some, you know, we are seeing some people with, with like, you know, they, you know, if we look at, for example, people who recover from an ICU admission, it doesn't, I mean, Eric Quadro, I don't need to tell you this. Like we look at uh, Margaret Herridge, Dr. Margaret Herridge at Toronto General, like one of the pioneers of this area. You could, if you make it to the ICU for any reason, and you survive the ICU for any reason. Most people, many people have functional disability five years out. She pioneered this. It's in the New England Journal. She's amazing. She's a mm -hmm. solid scientist and clinician. I worked with her. She's incredible. But, uh, so, but, but that's really the sickest of the sick. Uh, so, you know, COVID-19 or not, uh, people who recover from the ICU can tend to have functional disabilities years after they are, are discharged. Now, people with mild COVID-19 infections that never make it into hospital, even them, some of them are still having persistent symptoms months and months after. Kids are not immune to this. Uh, and I think there's going to be some kids that are going to have that as well. Yeah. Um, I think this is a quick question. Um, are, are we seeing the low rates in kids because of because we did the lockdown social distancing and they haven't been in school, or you think we'll continue to see that in places that either have opened up or they've had schools, uh, op never closed. Um, uh, I'm not picking. Can I yet. take that. Okay. okay. I think the low well, rates in kids are melt is multifactorial. One is that schools were locked down and they didn't have an opportunity to get infected. Two is also probably a selection bias in general. Kids have milder symptoms, so they're just not getting tested. And I think if they were testing more, they'd probably find more cases. Uh, so I think it's, and there's probably a multitude of reasons why the incidence in kids was small, was, was lower. Now, if we look at the data now in Canada, uh, the, 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 like people under the age of 40 and especially, I hate how they break it up into 20 year age groups. You can actually, there's more granular data, but younger individuals, not just 20 year olds, but younger individuals, depending on which part of the country you're in, like children and, and teens and like school-aged kids, sometimes they represent either the highest or the second highest uh, uh, group uh, with, the, with the greatest incidence of, of cases. So of course they can, they certainly get, anyone can get infected. So uh, there was probably a few reasons why we weren't seeing a lot of cases in kids earlier on. All right. Um, 
this one's a big one and uh i think um i just think it's a good i think it's a good (laughs) it's a good way to to cover a lot here actually so what kids when you off the top of your mind grapes what kids would be at high risk going back to school like who would you really got to think about hey man like maybe you should stick stay home or um just the 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 risk outweigh outweigh the benefits yeah, and, and listen, this is a huge question that everybody who has kids in school is grappling with right now. I think that, you know, initially I thought that it was just, for example, if you have asthma or if you have, a lot of these things don't seem to matter. It seems that the kids that get the sickest from this require, you know, either a major hospitalization or, uh, you know, ventilation are kids that have severe, you know, uh, neurodegenerative disorders, um, you know, uh, all sorts of like kind of um, end-stage respiratory, uh, tracheostomy, that kind of thing. Um, that said, is that the other thing I think you have to consider is what your house status is like, right? I will say one thing that right now we are at a good place in Canada, that overall we have a very low amount of transmission all across the country. So that protects everybody in every circumstance because the chance of there being COVID to begin with is low. But that said, if you, for example, were living with somebody who has, you know, a, a patient uh, 60 years old or over, patient, sorry, a family member, grandma, you know, 60 years old or over, has comorbidities uh, and is someone really close with the kids, Maybe that's a personal choice. You'd say, you know what, maybe I'll keep my kids home. So it's kind of more of the contact that you're worried about as opposed to the kid, him or herself. But, you know, it's a complicated situation. And I think that, um, you know, right now we all have to kind of take this, the risk factors, look at your own risk tolerance and make a decision for yourself. And it's not going to be the same for everybody, but I will go on record saying one thing. My kids are small. They're, you know, one and uh, two right now. But if they were of school age, I would send them. Uh, based on what's happening right now, September the whatever it is, third, two thousand twenty. Oh, sorry, sorry, I was. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been muting because uh, the kids are still up in this bad boy. Um, anything to add, Isaac? Like uh, you know, the, uh, the reason I think uh, I left it pretty open ended too is like we had a a lot of questions from uh, special needs communities and yeah. Um, Yep. So I thought that, yeah. that might be a way to... Uh, that's a really good point, it. right? That's a very good point because special needs children is such a broad umbrella. And you can imagine underneath that umbrella, there will certainly be children who, if they get infected, are at risk of having a more severe outcome. Absolutely. But because it's such a broad umbrella, there's probably some children under that umbrella that are probably at no greater risk of having a severe outcome compared to other children. So just by using the term special needs, I think is, is not sufficient enough. And, and as Suman points out, it is, it's so hard to make blanket statements here because so much of this has to be individualized and also contextualized, right? What is the risk for your individual child? Which, what home does your child go home to? Is there someone else? So special needs or not, who do you go home to at the end of the day? Is there someone at home who's at greater risk for having a severe infection if a child picks us up at school and brings it home? What are the rates of infection in the community? And what is the risk of introducing this into the school? I think the other interesting thing is when we're doing risk assessments, this is dynamic. This changes with time. So as parents are thinking about sending their kids back to school September 3rd, you know, school's right around the corner. 
look, we could be fit. You might be in an area where there's very, very little transmission. You think, you know what? We're good. We might have a grandparent at home, but there's so little transmission in our community. We're all in. And then you fast forward a couple of months and, and there's a, you know, a big outbreak either at your school or in your community. You might say, you know what? We got to pivot here. This might not be the most appropriate thing, given that we have grandparents living in the house. And so I think uh, people really need to watch the, the situation on the ground evolve with time and, and very peri like periodically check in to see how things are going. And as Suman points out, I don't want to just reiterate everything you said, but like a, a lot of this base is, is boils down to um, people's risk tolerances and risk thresholds. Sadly, it's true, but sadly, some people, they're, 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 their arms are turned for them. Like this decision is made for them. People, some people obviously don't have a choice, right? Some people we've got, imagine single parents who are working, who are trying to support a family, whatever. There's a lot of different circumstances where people don't have a choice. Their kids are going back to school because of a variety of reasons. And, and that's obviously an extremely challenging situation. I'm not saying it's fair because it certainly isn't, but that's the situation that a lot of people are left in, unfortunately. Fair enough. Okay, class sizes. This is a big one that people again mad anxious about. Um, yeah, you know, fifteen versus twenty-five versus thirty. What's your point of view on that? Can I start? I'm gonna start okay. with I Isaac. Oh, I have a lot of opinions on this, and you know what sucks? Make it rain. Make it rain, son. Honestly, I, I don't know who's watching, but like for a while, it was a few weeks back. There was a lot of people putting words in my mouth, which was rather obnoxious. Listen, obviously, the smaller the class size, the better. I mean, that's just obvious. The, the kids have to physically distance, right? There's a lot of reasons to have a smaller class size. One, uh, it certainly will facilitate physical distancing within the classroom. So that's extremely important. The other, there's many other reasons too. It might be easier to control a class. And even if there is space to physically distance, it might be easier to control a class if you've got younger kids to ensure that you know the, the, the student to teacher ratio is in favor for the teacher keeping everyone sort of uh, up to date on what needs to happen. And the third thing is if there is an outbreak or if there are cases in a classroom, the ripple effect, the impact on the other students is, is lower. I mean, if there's just fewer kids in the class then fewer people can get it. And not only that, think about the repercussions if you have to send 15 kids home to isolate versus if you have to send 22 kids home to isolate. That might mean that those are additional parents that have to stay home and watch their kids if they're not old enough, which means that there's that many more parents who aren't working, who aren't supporting their families, who are you know, like, there's a tremendous ripple effect. And then you, you know, expand that across the city, the province, the country, like this, this has tremendous repercussions. So clearly small class sizes are better. Having said that, having said that, we do live in a world of limited resources. And um, I appreciate that there's yin and there's yang. And, and of course, this is not going to be perfect. And, and, and when you look at the various provincial plans, there's serious holes in all provincial plans. Some have bigger holes in, in their plans than others. But, but physical distancing seems to be an issue in, in many, many of the provincial plans. Can you maybe get class sizes a little bit smaller? maybe you're not getting this, you know, people are pulling this 15 out of their hat. That's a magic number. I mean, like you can arbitrarily make it any of many other different numbers. The, but the point is, you don't, you, the smaller class size is better, but you really want to um, facilitate physical distancing within the class. 
not all classes are created equally, right? You might have some really old buildings that are over a hundred years old that have small classes and, and, and like you really can't physically distance in that class. Whereas you might have other facilities that are newer schools or larger classes, or the school has a gym that they're going to use. Like you might have creative use of your facility where you can really spread kids apart uh, and, and create and just use your environment a little bit better to really get kids two meters apart. But I know I'm rambling on. I think the key thing is physical distancing is extremely important, as are the other fundamental public health principles like ventilation, putting on a mask in an indoor setting, hand hygiene. But physical distancing is extremely important. I would aim for that two-meter rule. One of the best ways to do it is to get class sizes smaller. And smaller class sizes uh, have a lot of other positives beyond physical distancing like we just talked about. So that's how I feel about that. Pretty articulate there, Dr. Bogach. <laughs> Thank you very much, Suman. <laughs> I can move on, Suman, if you're happy with that. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazing answer. Amazing answer. Uh, <laughs> stop it. Stop it. Um, oh, you. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, but th this is just me venting. Like, this is an opportunity for people to be creative, okay? Like, yeah. I know yeah. it's not it's a resource thing. I know there's a lot of nuance to this, but you have gyms, you have like recreational centers that aren't being open, that aren't being used at the time. We have uh, the capacity to be outside at times. Like when we know there's reduced transmission, be creative, be innovative, just like think outside the box. Like it doesn't have to be a, like, I was talking with a colleague the other, uh, that uh, the kids, kids went to school in Alberta today. 30 kids in a class in 2020 yeah, that's insane. in general in 2020. Like, nah, yeah, man. but that's insane. And you're spot not. on. You are yeah. spot. I totally agree with you. Now, depending on the province you're in, I'm not, I know we're all sitting at, no, you're in Ottawa. We're in Toronto. Yeah. I don't want to be Ontario centric here, but depending on the province you're in, you've been the school, the school boards or education has been given different, money, different budgets to, 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 to facilitate this. I'm not saying it's enough. I'm not saying it's enough. I'm saying that they've been given budgets to do this. And, and at least in the Ontario setting, the message was, here's money. Schools aren't all created equally. Some schools might have enough space. If you need to hire teachers, hire teachers. Here's money. You might, you might not have enough space. You need to rent out a, a rec center nearby to get your kids in there to spread them apart, great. Like you, it's no, there's no one size fits all solution. Here's, here's money to do what you need to do to spread the kids out. The counterpoint to that is, great, thank you, we can do that. It's just not enough money. It's just not enough resources to do it. But I'm, I'm with you. It's time, like, I'm not, you know, it's yeah. time to get creative. That's what they got. Of course we should advocate for more. Of course we can do better, of course. Uh, more is better and, and there's always room for improvement on this. But at the end of the day, the school year is going to start, you know, in a few minutes and use the space that you've got wisely, use the resources that you've got wisely to make this as safe as possible. Reach out. And, and this is local, right? Like we talk about provincial plans, but the rubber hits the road at the level of the school. And even though you might have schools under the same umbrella and the same school board and the same district and the same province, they might have different solutions with the resources that have been applied to them. So you might have, you know, schools that are close together in each other in proximity that have totally 
vastly different safety profiles because of how they've adopted to these plan how they've adopted these plans locally so i think it's extremely important for parents to reach out to their local school to see how are you going to use the resources available to you to to really implement these fundamental public health principles especially physical distancing you know yeah. uh, that that's really important because then you can make an informed decision on really whether or not you're comfortable with your your kid going back great great point and you, this is one of the questions in terms of uh um you know how you know, is one meter versus two meters, is that better? Is, I mean, to me, the further distance, the more impact. I don't know if we need to go into more detail than that. Um, the uh, question related to this a bit too, or maybe it's not even related. Okay, direct versus indirect exposure. So example that um, one of the people gave was, your, your kid um, is in a class and someone is positive in the class. And you, the, the, what do what do what do we have to do with their brothers and sisters? What do the parents have to do? Like what from either the theoretical evidence from approach, like whatever you however you want to tackle that one. What how do we deal with the indirect exposure? So that the kid, for for example, that's um, yeah is the having no symptoms. Of the exposures. Yeah, yeah, the exposures of the, the meta exposure. No one's. And no, the exposures are the exposures are the exposures and no one's symptomatic. Right. Jack? All right. I got this one. So this is actually something that we've been doing since the beginning. So I think that when you look at the way um, uh, people are exposed, you have to kind of almost quantify the risk. Let's take a look at, you know, the, the big main factors of the increasing risk of spread include closer distance, longer period of time in an enclosed space. Okay. So this is the part of the reason why when we look at the pattern of who has been getting infected, you look at cluster after cluster after cluster, they all tend to be in a situation where there are people in an enclosed space close together for a prolonged period of time with some sort of, uh, you know, whether it's yelling, talking, screaming, singing, that type of thing, an agitated level of breathing. Okay. So for example, if you are in a class and I'm sitting on one side of the class and somebody else has COVID and there's not a lot of uh, mixing, the risk of me getting COVID from that person across the classroom, the other end is probably quite low. That said, from a public health standpoint, that entire cohort, uh, you know, that uh, the students that are allowed to mix together, it's, it's the, the biggest cohort we'll see is one class, is the whole class will be sent home. But that said, if you are somebody who doesn't have COVID and you're asymptomatic, the secondary ones, we just basically tell them to watch, watch for your symptoms. Okay, so for example, let's say if I'm in the same class as Isaac, he gets COVID and I get sent home and I'm not, I don't have a lot of close contact with him. Then why am I the guy getting COVID? You should be. You should, you should be, be, man. You, you should, should be. be. Look, yeah. at you. Look at you. Isaac gets always an example. Goddamn. <laughs> so if he gets COVID and you know, I'm far away, then okay, you know, I'll be sent home, but this, it's not going to really apply to my, my brother or my sister at home because it's, it's a, now it's a second and third degree type of exposure those people just be uh, monitoring for symptoms. We have to remember, and I know this seems uh, like, you know, this was a virus that was a pandemic around the world. I, I don't mean to be flippant, but you, you have to work to get COVID. You don't just walk by somebody in a, in a restaurant or a, a grocery store. You have to be exposed to them for several minutes, if not half an hour to a couple of hours before you get COVID. All right. So just having somebody in the same room is not enough. Thank and, you for this. Yeah. No, man. And you see these cats when you're, they're, you're jogging by you and they start to like freak out and like, 
yeah, sustained close proximity indoor exposure. And but thank you. I mean, that was a question I had personally because, like, as a frontline staff, like when the kid gets exposed and I can't go to work like that. Like that could have yeah. such a huge reverberations. Effect. Like you know what I mean? Like it, it would be endless. Um, so thank you for that. Um, here's a question. Has there been any studies that you're aware of, of the rates of infections uh, or transmissions from kids to adults? Yeah. This one, Bogach. Sure. Um, it's funny because there's documented cases. There certainly are documented cases. But if we're talking about studies, it's kind of hard to... Um, it, unfortunately, most of the arrows are pointing in the other direction from adults to kids or the waters are muddied because a lot of it is in-house transmission. And a lot of the studies we're looking at, you know, not so much transmission within the schools, uh, but transmission within the home. So it's not entirely clear who got it and who, who infected who in what order. Now, there are school-based outbreaks um, and some data from schools where you can see that the infections were amplified in the school setting and children clearly went home with this infection and brought it into the community. So, you know, there's certainly that, that data is available. Um, I think what I'm not going to put words into this person's mouth, but one of the issues that's being debated now is what, to what extent, or what is the efficiency of transmission of kids to others. So as you know, Suman pointed out a few minutes ago, anyone of any age can get infected. Doesn't matter if you're one minute old or a hundred years old, anyone can get infected. Anyone can transmit infection. Again, doesn't matter if you're one minute old or a hundred years old, you can transmit this infection. But to what extent, what is the efficiency that a younger person can transmit this to others? Now, there's no question they can transmit it, but you're actually, there's some interesting data demonstrating some there is some data that says you know perhaps it's less the younger kids are just less likely to transmit they're just not as efficient at transmitting there's other data that shows the complete opposite really high viral loads in kids lots of shedding in kids uh viral shedding in kids that were you know kids completely able to transmit based on you know, viral studies completely like as as likely as adults to transmit this infection so, you know, that we can split hairs and figure out, you know, discuss what the role is of transmission. But like, I think the key point is when you stick, you know, 500 kids into a box and, and shake it up, you know, kids are going to infect each other for sure if, if public health principles aren't adhered to. And kids will bring this home and infect others if public health principles aren't adhered to. So, you know, some of these questions are interesting. They're important. Some of them are also just largely academic because yeah. we know anyone can get it and can transmit it. Absolutely. Um, do you guys know anything about this? Can you discuss new research around the connection between sickle cell trait and COVID risk? You guys, Suman uh, can. <laughs> he what? did his PhD in sickle cell trait. I, I, yeah, yeah, I didn't know. Uh, you know something? Straight up? Uh, no. Full disclosure, I, I I don't know the answer to this. However, I'll say one thing that I remember at the very beginning of uh, COVID, when we were like uh, amassing data, which we still are, I found that a lot of these little associations were coming out, blood type, um, yeah. you know, uh, background comorbidities, 
uh, all these types of different things. What's kind of come through all that noise, a signal that has come through all that noise is a major risk factor to things like age. And if I can make a bit of a, uh, I don't want to say almost a theory here, but it seems to be age and um, uh, almost atherosclerotic risk factors. All right. So that's one of the things that I've noticed people tend to do worse. Now, I'm not saying that's for everybody. I'm just saying that uh, with things like sickle cell, maybe there is actually um, an association, but these things are all stuff that have been noticed, but haven't been necessarily replicated. But that said, I mean, sickle cell clearly has um, uh, implications in terms of vascular disease and certainly COVID can cause uh, vascular uh, types of complications. So it uh, stands to reason that that could be a connection, but to my knowledge right now, no tight connection. Isaac, there was a study that came out today that you're going to quote, aren't you? No, no, I'm not. I was just joking. I don't know. I don't know. But I got to tell sure you. We'll find something. I got to tell you, though, boy, you're on fire with the, with the papers, man. I, like, I used yeah. one of your, uh, the Decadron one in uh, the ICU, the JAMA one. T- they come out today? Yeah. Tell me. I didn't I publish that. I know, but I know you didn't publish it, but you, oh. you, you tweeted it like a beast. Oh, okay, like, okay, phew. I was like, yeah, you're like, on yeah. top of your... I, I, I'd be, I wish I did. Like, you know, when you're like, why, why did I think of that <laughs> why one? Why did I think of that? Start a clinical trial. Yeah. Um, I published I mean, crap. I'm like, <laughs> what do we have? Uh, what do we have coming out? We have a review, a good review paper. Hey, take it. I mean... We got a... Uh, you know what's cool? Can I brag for a second? Speaking do it, of publishing, do it. totally do unrelated. It, man, yeah. Okay, here's a brag. Pardon me for bragging. I hope no one's listening. There's uh, there's 49 <laughs> people on here, but we're like four of them. So, uh, the very, very, very first paper on COVID nineteen, the very first academic paper on COVID nineteen, was us. Really? January 14th, it came out online in the Journal of Travel Medicine. And it's like, we looked at the, we looked at air travel patterns outside of Wuhan. We didn't even know it was a coronavirus then. It was called, I think it's called like pneumonia of unknown etiology and the potential for international dissemination. We showed where it was likely going to go based on air patterns. Can can I make a statement about that? The thing that was so amazing about that, if I, if if I may add, is that um, people are talking about China, 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 and these guys mentioned Italy and Iran. And we're talking weeks before anything happened. Yeah, that was cool. All of a sudden, that worked like, out. It yep. doesn't always work out. You know how sometimes, sometimes when you publish something, you have a good idea. You're like, yeah, it might work out. Why not? That one worked out. That was pretty cool. Pretty happy about that. All right, kids. We're talking all right, about kids. All right, all right. Okay. We're not bragging about our um, terrible here research careers. We're going to do fledgling. some quick hitters here because there's a lot, actually. My God. Okay. Can um, we just do rapid fire? Yeah, let's try and do rapid. So one of you just. Uh, this has come up again, so I just want to really clarify. Two meters versus one meter for the kids. Is there anything to support that it's drastically different? No. Okay. Uh, it, you know what's interesting? Farther is better, okay? Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's not like some randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial of two meters versus one meter. How about this? Farther is better. Also, there's some psychology in this as well. Two meters has been ingrained in our DNA since... February. Okay. That's all we've heard. Two meters, two meters, two meters, two meters. It's two meters, whether we like it or not, it's two meters. Cause that's ingrained in our, in our DNA. And I know some places are doing one meter. Some places are doing a meter and a half. You know, other places are saying six feet, whatever that means. It's farther is better. And two meters is pretty reasonable. Okay. Um, I'll, 
I'll be sending my kids to two different facilities, one daycare, one elementary school. They are usually glued to each other when at home. Should I be concerned or try to keep them apart? Yeah, I, I think in this situation, we have to be pragmatic. I, I think just let them be. Again, I, I, I'm going to be, by the way, by the end of this podcast, I'm going to be a broken record about this. I want to stop and smell the roses for a second in Canada that we have low community spread on September 3rd, 2020. Okay. So I think that within these type of situations, low community spread protects all of us in all scenarios. And I think in this situation that, um, you know, the chance of anybody getting COVID to begin with is quite low, even in the school setting. I would say in this situation, stick to your public health principles uh, when you're at the facility uh, as much as you can, um, physical distance where you can wash the hands. When you come home, just, um, you know, I think being a pragmatic family, just uh, uh, continue as you were. Okay. Um, my daughter started school yesterday, 27 kids in her class. She has to wear a mask the vast majority of the time, except recess and lunch. Even in the classroom, is this kind of situ situation sustainable? Yes, uh, it is. I mean, I don't think the 27 kids in the classroom is a good idea. Uh, even if you have a you know football field of a classroom, like it's, it can be hard to 20, control 27 kids. I can't imagine that physically physical distancing would be easy in a in a situation like that. So I think that's challenging. But I think kids are pretty resilient. You know, everyone look. You know, the the problem is everyone looks at their own kids and then extrapolates to every other child, which isn't which isn't fair. But by and large, I think kids will do it. And again, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for pretty darn good most of the time. You know, your kid might, some of the kids might take off the mask. They might need a little break. Then they'll put it back on. The teacher might not notice on the big dealometer. This is a not, you know, like it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. So the 27 kids in the class is tough. That, that stinks. But, um, but uh, you know, mask wearing in a class, kids are pretty resilient. They're very adaptable. And by and large, they'll be fine. Of course, it's not, of course, it's not going to be perfect. It'll be pretty good. And that's, Oh, we that's, need, right? that's, that's reasonable. Yeah. Uh, I love this question, actually. Surface transmission. Has anything changed in terms of your opinions? Uh, yes. Okay, okay, let's hear it. <laughs> I, I, I think I know where it's going. That's why I okay. love it. I uh, talked about this uh, uh, one thing. Uh, I'll, I'll keep this short. Is The theater of um, uh, infection control. Have you ever noticed every single story about every single outbreak has the statement that we found the outbreak, we closed the facility, and then we did a deep clean? I don't even know what that means. What's a deep clean? You should be cleaning things that you normally clean, and outside of the healthcare setting, and arguably even in the healthcare setting, fomite transmission, meaning uh, touching a surface and then infecting yourself, is not a major driver at all. All right? Uh, you know, yeah, we were all keeping our Amazon boxes outside, washing our groceries, all this kind of stuff. It looks like the vast, 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 vast majority of cases happen through um, you know, respiratory transmission. So I think it's good that, look, after you've touched a bunch of stuff, you're coming home from somewhere, wash your hands. I don't think that the kids should be made to wash their hands tons of times at school. This is actually happening in Denmark, and there was an explosion in the amount of contact dermatitis and eczema. And as a sufferer of eczema myself, you can see right here, you don't want to be um, taking lots of hand sanitizer. But I think the point is, is before doing anything, for example, you're going to be, you would wash your hands anyway, like say before eating, wash your hands. But otherwise, I think that fomite transmission is something that um, we should be aware of, but it shouldn't be a driver in what we do. Beautiful.
Beautiful. Um, I got a quick, I got a random one. Um, George, did you guys look, read much about what went on in Georgia? Like they had that crazy amount of uh, cases when they opened up the schools. Did you, did you, yeah. was there any fallout? Like, was there increased hospitalizations or increased uh, anything no. after, like after that outbreak as far as well, you know? So yeah, just well, to be clear to the, yeah. And maybe if you know more than I do in terms of numbers, you could throw that down too. Sure. I don't know the numbers offhand, but George is a great example, but there's also like, like a, now it's, a, it's a like uncountable number of campuses that are having uh, big outbreaks. Uh, and, and we're talking about college kids, kids, they're young adults, obviously, but uh, um, you know, it's, it's really upsetting to watch. Uh, and even though there might be good infection prevention and control measures, perhaps in classes, which, might not actually be adhered to it's what's being done outside of the class so there's like dormitories parties fraternities and and we've heard a, a, a number of cases associated with that um it's tough but i think we have to remember that they're these are young health by and large young healthy people who are just not going to get that sick some of them might but proportionally very few of them will need to be seen by a physician or be seen in hospital or you know, re require ICU care or, or sadly die. It's just going to be a very, very rare event. Of course, it can happen. It's just going to be a much a, a rare event. The problem is nothing happens in isolation. And if you just look in the crystal ball ahead a few weeks, you can see that it bleeds out of this 20-year-old age group and into other age groups in the community. And then there's a lag time as well, usually about a three week lag time between a spike in community transmissions and then hospitalizations and death, unfortunately. So sometimes it needs a little bit of time uh, before you start to see that there, there can be a little lag time between hospitalizations and death. And I think we're gonna see that in, in many of these places that are having these campus outbreaks. There's a really interesting, it's called a heat map. Uh, in, and it was done in Florida where it was looking at um, age groups being affected by COVID-19. And you can sort of see age groups over time. And it's sort of like 20-year-olds, 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 20-year-olds. And then over time, you can just sort of see it drift into older age cohorts. Because, of course, you know, people go home to their parents. They go to their grandparents. They go to the store. They go infect other people in other settings. So it just takes a bit of time, but it'll happen. It's a very contagious infection. So yeah. other people are going to get it. Okay. Um, I love this question too, Julia. Thanks for screening this one. I'm really concerned not only about COVID, but that every upper respiratory tract infection may shut down schools and yeah. thus parents works. If <sighs> kids has a runny nose, obviously shouldn't be able to go to school, but do asymptomatics have to stay off work long-term? Um, so I guess basically, how do we, how do we hit that one? Um, you want? You got this? Yeah, you got this? yeah, yeah hit it. This is, this is exactly what I was thinking about. Uh, and I think that uh, what makes this very difficult is that exactly that, um, uh, you know, nice, um, that, uh, you know, COVID-19, especially in children, is very nonspecific. You know, it, it, it presents exactly like a flu, exactly like rhinovirus, exactly like other, you know, uh, common cold viruses, which also coronaviruses. So I do see that as being a problem is that, you know, anytime a kid gets a, a, a stuffy nose, you have to take them out of school 
perhaps take their, their um, uh, uh, cohort out of school, but then you have to go get tested. And that's the problem, right? I think that right now, as it stands today on September the 3rd, is that, you know, it's not that easy to test people. I mean, you go to the center, but that's still, you know, a, a day of work. You have to kind of get over there. You have to wait in line. Now, one thing that I think that could change the situation drastically is if we do have the in-home testing. And, you know, Isaac and I were talking about this earlier this week, is that, you know, right now Canada is looking into doing some of this stuff to kind of see if we can get some type of indicator of what to do. We have to really interpret this stuff very closely and make sure we're not using it in the wrong situation. But at least it can give us an idea and some guidance. And there is a saliva test that if at some point this comes available, might be able to give us an idea of number one, if you have COVID, number two, if you are actually um, contagious. And something that can be done um, uh, rapidly and often. We're not there yet. And I do think that the first several weeks are going to be a bit bumpy. You know, people are going to get sick. And, you know, I think the way things stand right now, if you get sick with something, the chance of you having COVID versus some, sorry, the chance of you having something other than COVID is much higher as of today. Um, so, but, but that said, you can't prove it. You have to get tested. And I think that once we start to get into the rhythm of things, this might be a bit easier, but I'll say one other big thing before I shut up here, but um, we have to, we can't um, uh, dismiss how important cohorts are. Okay. So in certain situations, your cohort is your entire class, but sometimes like they did in Germany, you can actually divide the class into groups. So you have a, a class of say 15 kids, but you have five kids in each cohort. They're far enough away from each other that if somebody in one of the cohorts gets sick, you can just take that cohort out and not have to, um, you know, dis uh, um, take everybody out of the class. That makes a big difference because you can actually keep kids apart. You can keep the maximum number of kids in the school and you don't have to shut the whole school down when there's an infection. I think this is a really, really cool idea because it reduces the number of um, transmissions between um, individuals. And uh, we're seeing it done right now with these bubbles that we see. That's what I have to say about that. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome, Tuman. Thank you. Um, but man, like, how do we not have a rapid test yet? Seriously? Yeah. I mean, like, sure, what's happening? It's embarrassing. There's a, like, there's it doesn't a make sense. Yeah, they, but they exist. They're, but, you know, it takes you got to do the studies. And then, of course, it's got to get passed through the regulatory agencies. I think it's really important now that we have saliva-based tests. Well, we don't, but there are the, the United States does, which is helpful. It still needs a lab to process, but it's extremely helpful. And then these rapid tests, like rapid tests are certainly in development. Um, they, I think they need a little bit more time, but not a ton. And I think the, what's probably going to be the rate-limiting step is the regulatory bodies and how they evaluate them. I think the key thing here is, you know, it's going to be in a perfect world, they'd function like a pregnancy test, right? It's not perfect. It's pretty good. All it has to do is help guide your decision-making, right? You're not asking, you know, the questions they'll answer is, should I send my kid to school today? Yes or no, right? Should I go into the office today? Yes or no. If the test is positive, the answer is no, don't go in. Maybe you should go call your local COVID-19 center, stay at home or, or get a diet or get a confirm that with a test, just like a pregnancy test, right? You, you know, your pregnancy test doesn't necessarily mean you're pregnant. It answers the question, you know, should I go out and have six crantinis this evening? If your pregnancy <laughs> test is positive, the answer is probably no. You should probably not. And then maybe go see your family physician the next day to confirm their pregnancy result and 
gets counseling, right? Like that's, like, that's the whole point of the test. It's rapid. It guides your decision-making in real time. It's not the perfect test. It's a screening test. It's not a diagnostic test. It guides your behavior over the next few hours or days and prompts you to seek additional care. I, I mean, I, you lost me once you started busting out Grantinis. Like, do people still drink you know what? a Grantini? Like, for real? It seems like Maybe very, like, Ali McBeal kind of thing. shut off by now, but, like... Maybe that was a little too personal information <laughs> that maybe happened several years ago that may be related to something that might be related to someone's personal life. But yeah, oh my God. I'll, I'll, we'll leave it. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Um, this has come up a couple times, and it, and it might not be fair for a bunch of ID docs, but. What will the, in your opinions, what will the long-term mental health impacts for children learning in unnatural learning environments? Are you worried about this, at least in your, amongst your kids, maybe? Isaac is an expert on child development and, uh, <laughs> and, and education. He was dying to answer this question. So I will, I, I will be the good friend and allow him to do it. My God, Jesus, friends like Suman, eh? Uh, personally, like, I mean, like, as you point out, we're not experts in child mental health development. There's probably a lot better people that can answer that. Having said that, you know, each to their own, right? I think every parent sort of has a good understanding of what their kids' needs are and and, and maybe some of the vulnerabilities and intricacies of their individual children. Um, I'm sure there's some kids that are going to be significantly impacted by this. And I think there's other children that won't be. And like, you know, I know we're always sort of guided by the people that we're exposed to in our close circle. But if I sort of look up and down our street and look at the, you know, we have a ton of kids that live in our neighborhood, you can kind of see who is, you know, the resiliency in some of these children. And you you can sort of see some kids that, you know, really do need a more structured environment who really would benefit from being at school and who might be negatively impacted by all of these you know, mask wearing, cohort, all all these interventions. Whereas on the other hand, you certainly see a lot of kids that are just sort of like, yeah, put on their mask, go to school, no big deal, come home, wrestle with their brother and sister and go to bed, you know, like, so I think there's like anything else, there's there's, there's probably a a pretty big spectrum, but like, I'm so not qualified to answer that question. Yeah. yeah, I'll, uh, you know what, I'll get my my wife, the psychologist, so I'll get her, after the next question, I'll get her to Where answer is she? that one. Is she nearby? Man, she, you would think, but uh, she, she has one nothing. Get your Puma. ass in. Puma. <laughs> um, all right. I'll get her while we answer this question. Um, based on Ontario's safe return to school plan, do you think things will come to a point where Ford shuts down all schools again? On, yeah. I think that uh, yeah, this is something that's clearly on all of our minds. And I think that uh, the best way to put it is I think, I personally think that um, this kind of national lockdown, this widespread big sledgehammer type of lockdown that happened back in March is very unlikely to happen in Canada again. Dr. Bogach and I, as well as our buddy uh, Zane Chagla, we, we talked about an important thing with uh, COVID-19 is that we are at a point of low community spread right now. We expect to see cases. We can kind of keep this 
dance with the virus and keep the levels low. So I think that the, the chance of this exploding into a situation where we have to shut down everything is low. In March, we had tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of, and maybe thousands of people returned from travel. They injected cases all at once into the community, and then we had to deal with that. So, hey, hey, hey. we have an expert. We do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's up? What's up? I was like literally making a sandwich in the other room. Oh, what kind? <laughs> yeah, uh, tur uh, turkey. Oh, turkey with mustard. We need Amazing. your expertise. We have no idea what we're talking about, and I'm yeah. glad there's a professional here. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm like I'm looking at the question. Uh, what will the long-term mental health impacts for children yes. learning in a natural learning environment? Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm not a child psychologist, so it's hard for me to speak to like the specifics of it, but my experiences and my understanding is that like kids are highly adaptable, right? So it's more important that they're in the environment and they have some consistency and routine and that they have the socialization. And, um, I, I don't think, I think kids adapt pretty well. Like the question about unable to interact naturally with their peers. I have a feeling there will be a lot of natural interactions and it will just simply be the mask and a bit of distance that uh, that is the thing that is different that they'll adapt to pretty quickly. I'm, I'm not too concerned about it, frankly. Bam, mommy dropping science and yeah. knowledge. <laughs> awesome. That's, uh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank you, that easy? thank you, thank you. Can you drop the mic? No, you can Yeah, I drop, drop the mic, but it's expensive. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is how it makes a quality sound. Thank you, love you. Amazing. Oh, so <laughs> this has got to be like one of the highlights of the quadcast. I like, agree. Oh, I man. totally agree. Your wife comes in, saves the day, scientist, <laughs> clinician wife with the oh, drop of knowledge. Great. She did, so she co-hosted a show... Uh, a couple of weeks back and people were like, we don't need you. Like just get Kathy <laughs> to do the show. You know what I'm saying? I was like, okay, you know, feelings aren't hurt at all. Um, but uh, sorry, Suman, I, I, to be honest with you, did you get to finish that question? You no, were I, 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 one quick point, I guess the, to conclude, I would say in terms of closing schools, I certainly think that they're by, as chance would have it, we're going to have certain areas of the country, whether it's a, certain regions that may have to lock down or may have to tighten their uh, public health restrictions. It's going to happen. I bet you it's going to happen uh, most likely here in Peel. Uh, in, uh, I'm in Mississauga right now. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen forever. And it also doesn't mean it's going to happen broadly. So that's what I uh, predict is going to happen. And uh, I hope and, you know, of course, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll bet you guys right now that we don't go into a national lockdown again. Yeah, you guys came on the show last time and predicted. Actually, why don't we just say it again? Like, what for Isaac then? What do you predict in terms of what will happen in the fall? Okay, well, I mean, we know that there's going to be a rise in cases. I think it's pretty clear that people are going to be driven indoors for a variety of reasons. Kids going back to school, people going back to work in person, colder temperatures, economies reopened. There's a lot of reasons why people are going to be clustering together in indoor settings. And even if we try our best, it's not going to be good enough, right? Even if we try and implement these public health, uh, you know, initiatives, it's not, we know it's not going to be perfect. We're going to see a rise in cases. We're already starting to see, you know, a pretty, pretty impressive rise in the seven day averages, for example, in places like BC, Alberta, even in Manitoba, um, Quebec as well, Ontario, like we're seeing a rise in cases in Canada. It's not, it's not tremendous, but it's there. It's real. There's, there's 
there's a trend and you know a lot of this depends on us and, and what what how we all actively behave and act over the next uh, next few months. But I think the fall, we're certainly going to see a rise in cases. Like Suman says, it's not going to just spike overnight. It's going to happen with time, but it's happening and it's already started. So the question is, you know, to what extent is that going to impact the schools? I honestly don't know. I just don't know. I, I think it's going to be, it's not going to come to anyone's surprise that kids are going to go to school with COVID or teachers going to go to school with COVID. It's actually already happened in Quebec. Uh, so I think that's going to happen. I think one of the real kickers here, the real, the real question I'm, I'm, I'm looking for is, to what extent is COVID going to be transmitted in the schools? Like, I get, of course, it's going to be brought into the schools. There's basal rates of COVID in the community. There, you know, we know that's going to happen. But how well will the schools' initiatives prevent transmission in the school setting? That's, that's I think, the big question. Um, and I think, you know, as, as we know, not all schools are created equally, not all provincial plans are created, created equally. We're going to see some transmission in the schools. And, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if there are some schools that have to, that have to shut down or close at some point in the winter. I won't be surprised if it's done more broadly, like on a regional level. Uh, you know, hopefully it doesn't happen at a provincial or a national level, but like, you know, people speak very confidently about their predictions. And I, I, I don't, I just don't know how you can do that. Like it truly, anything can happen on the one hand. Yeah. No one would be surprised if there's a big outbreak and, and, and you know, schools have to be shut down over a large area. On the other hand, it, it also might, might not happen too. Like it's just, it's very hard to predict. Uh, and I, I quite frankly, wouldn't be surprised with either outcome. What I won't, what we do know is that it will be introduced to the schools. It absolutely will be. It has already. And, but 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 it, it certainly will be introduced to the schools. You know the the real unknown is how much transmission will actually happen at the level of the school. Yeah, I um, as <clears throat> little life hack. Any the more certain one of these experts come on, on whether it's social media or, or conventional media with their assertions, the oh. more likely I am to ignore that and realize yeah. like it's it's amazing. I this has been there's so many. Uh, aspects of this pandemic that's been like absolutely fascinating and how certain people are about the numbers what yeah. the future lies um, sifting through data sifting through journal articles even that and art articles that are now retracted and so forth. like this has been so challenging in terms of getting a, a sense of what to trust um, yeah. And I mean, this is why you guys are here, like, to be honest with you, is that there's been so much misinformation. You oh, don't know what to trust. You don't know what, what so I, bad. Like, you don't even know where to go. Um, but um, it's so bad. The but, other like, thing, too, is sometimes like, I don't know about you, but like, sometimes there's people who should know better, right? Yeah. People who are otherwise good docs, good public health providers, good scientists. And you look at some of the things, everyone's entitled to a bad day, right? Everyone's entitled to, you know, a slip up on the air or, you know, a stupid tweet or something like that. But like, sometimes you just see people who should know better, who are sort of making more than one or two slip ups repeatedly over time or who's, you know, opinions might be, you know, digging in heels where the, in the face of new data just don't seem to pivot 
like, oh man, this is not. Yeah. That's a really good point right. that you make, actually, Isaac. Is that like I think that um, exactly like you know for uh, you know the, my prediction about the the um, uh, the outbreaks or whatever. Like, of course, and if I'm wrong. I, like and I've been wrong many times. Actually, I was wrong at the very, very beginning when Isaac and I were discussing this, and I, I say, I say, ah, COVID won't really be that much. And he's like, no, 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 no. I think that you know the cats. He kept posting this friggin' meme of this cat coming out of the bag. Isaac, what's this cat coming out of the bag? He goes, you know, I, I think that there's more infection than we think. I'm like, no, no, no. And then like literally a month later, we're in lockdown. Right. Um, but uh, no, I, I think it's important that, yeah, you can't be confident. You have to kind of um, consider other scenarios. I, I think it's quite okay to make an opinion on something, but you know, when there's new data, you have to like, you know, gear down and you know what, I've been wrong many times and uh, I've continued to learn. It's been a, a, you know, growing experience. Yeah. And even, I mean, I don't want to um, sway from our, key um themes here but even from the icu perspective how much has changed hey intubate these guys early <laughs> and then it's, now it's like wait as long as possible like the one just kidding just kidding <laughs> just kidding intubate them late yeah oh my god Hydroxy remember steroids early. dude remember early in the pandemic oh man, that's true that is true do not give, do not give steroids early ARDS. now it's just kidding the dream. give everyone with ARDS steroids right like, oh my god great. pivot Listen, yeah. pivot in the face of new data, but also pivot in the face of new data. Yeah. The key word yeah. is new and emerging data, not pivot in the face of knee-jerk reactions to what people might think might be going on. Like, yeah. uh, have some data to back this up. Yeah. There's been a lot of sort of knee-jerky reactions too, which are kind of unfortunate. Absolutely. So I think uh, I'm cognizant of the time. I think we got um, one or two more questions and then we could, uh, you guys could, if you feel like there's anything that you want to add, I'll give you that opportunity. But um, uh, would HEPA filter units be helpful in classrooms with poor air circulation? You know, I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that, but I, I think that ventilation is certainly a thing. I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot of um, controversy versus airborne and all that. I think the point is, I think that we all agree that good ventilation is, is key because a lot of the outbreaks we're seeing are in these small spaces, poor ventilation and close contact for a prolonged period of time. You know, there's been some evidence kind of, it's more of these kind of physical, uh, physics types of studies where like UV light helps, HEPA filters help. Certainly, they help in uh, in uh, things like tuberculosis. So, presumably, they help with uh, um, COVID as well. But that said, um, it wouldn't hurt. Uh, I think that the better thing, though, is just either do it outside or keep the windows open. Yeah. Um. The there was a question earlier that I was just a, I don't know if it's a, appropriate for. Our, I'll just bust it out. Vitamin D. Any. Any second thoughts? It's your on... turn, Isaac. It's your sure. turn. So a couple of things. Here's where I get the hate mail. So listen, if you're vitamin D deficient, so truly vitamin D deficient, you should probably supplement with vitamin D as per, you know, Canadian guidelines and basically guidelines ever across the world. So that's pretty straightforward. If you're vitamin D deficient, does that make you a greater risk for getting COVID-19? Probably not. 
does that put you at greater risk for having a severe COVID-19 infection? Question mark. Some people are adamant that it does. Uh, some people say, well, maybe, maybe not. Um, but, you know, regardless, if you're vitamin D deficient, you should supplement with vitamin D. Now, do you need to, if you have normal vitamin D levels, will taking vitamin D supplements provide any protection against getting COVID-19? No, they will not. Will taking additional supplements of vitamin D, D if you have normal vitamin D levels, may, uh, enable you to have a less severe COVID infection? No. So at the, more, at the end of the day, if you're vitamin D deficient, there's a lot of reasons to take vitamin D supplements. Um, and the interaction with COVID-19 and vitamin D deficiency is not entirely clear. Now, people are going to point to data X and data Y, which are these highly convenient observational studies that don't really tell us much. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, if you're vitamin D deficient, you should probably take some vitamin D. For a lot I was, was going to say that exact same thing. So, you know, I'm glad that you know, we, I gave him a chance to talk about vitamin D. <laughs> <laughs> All right, boys. I think that those are the, the gist and the most of the questions that I could see that were, um, once again, curated by the, the, the amazing Julia Ajar. Um, and so... Any any parting remarks to our, our our crew out there that are getting ready for the school year or that have started the school year? Anything? Uh, we'll start with Suman. Anything you want to add? And it's okay to say nothing if that's what you want, Fresh. But uh, you you know, give some once love. again, uh, I I, I want to say the same thing. I want to give all my support uh, uh, and you know backing to our teachers, our students, and our parents. We understand as healthcare workers, I mean, I guess we're students, parents uh, as well, but we understand exactly how everybody feels. I can actually say that. I understand exactly how everyone feels. We were there once and we, have, we all have your back. I think that the one thing that people should remember is that number one, low community transmission. So I do think that overall on September the 3rd, 2020, things are, are, you know, it's a low risk of transmission. But I think the overall is remember there is actually a precedent where things have worked. It's, you know, everything hasn't been a disaster. There's places in Europe, multiple places where schools have been open. Things have worked okay. And things are working okay right now. Things could change. Obviously, Canada is different in many ways, but I do think that ultimately this will be successful. Um, and I, I think there is certainly hope for the school year to be uh, a, a pleasant surprise. Could I be wrong? Completely. I could be, but I just want uh, people to know that uh, um, there is hope and we got your back. You got this, teachers and students and parents. Well, well said, uh, Suman. Isaac, any, any love out there for anybody? Sure. I, I mean, I think this is, the, this is the fall and winter of tolerance. Everyone needs to just have a little bit of extra wiggle room and tolerance. And, and uh, you know, that means if a kid needs to stay home, great, stay home. If a parent needs to stay home uh, because a child is home, I really hope employers have tolerance and, and leniency to allow people to work from home, the flexibility to work from home. Uh, if a child needs to be home for a period of 14 days, like we all, it's, this is, this, this is going to be a tough winter. We all know it. It's not going to be easy whatsoever. We're not going to have a vaccine in Canada probably until, you know, early 2021. 
that's still a while away. And, and things are probably going to get a little bit worse before, the, before they get better, unfortunately. So I think, obviously, we just need to appreciate that these systems that are designed are not perfect. And everyone's just, by and large, getting by doing the best they can. Uh, it's time to be a bit forgiving, to have tolerance, to have leniency. And uh, we'll, you know, obviously, we'll, we'll all do our best. Absolutely. And, you know, I just... I just want to give some love to the to our public health, and I've I've been skeptical at times of some of these decisions. But if you look at like at a bird's eye view in Canada, and especially you know including Ontario, where we're all in, like we have we have gone like we have gone through with never being overwhelmed with um, not having super high community spread. Like the measures that's been in place have been excellent, and and what they've implemented, what I guess what I'm trying to say is what they've implemented has worked, uh, and so like to for them to say that hey, you know our kids could be in school right now that says a lot, and I'm putting my faith in that, and I'm 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 optimistic that uh, the school year will 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 go okay. I won't say. I won't say uh, absolutely smooth, but it'll be relatively okay. Um, boys, Julia, thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I know whether it's one or two or 20 parents out there that are now maybe put at ease, the, the teachers that might be put at ease by this, uh, I think means a lot. So uh, you guys taking the time to do this means the world to me. Thank you so much for doing this. Round three, you know what I'm nice. saying? Round nice. three, but yeah. round three <laughs> in the books, y'all. For those that are listening, follow us on Quadcast at YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, leave any comments at Quadcast nine nine at gmail We love we love uh, all the feedback. We love the support. The show's almost a year old, and I can't tell you the amount of wonderful things that have come through. Through, uh, producing this bad boy so thanks again and uh we'll connect real soon have a good night thanks for having us on absolutely thanks, boys let's do it again absolutely your smile your smile is the only one that feels